Hey y'all, it's Marianne. Welcome back to No Place Like Home. Today's episode is being brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to explore, enjoy, and protect this planet and to join our 2 million members and supporters who are working to power this nation with 100% clean energy. Thanks also to the band River Wireless for our awesome theme music. We have got a great new episode for you today, and we'll be back after the election with more new shows. So please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes so that you won't miss an episode and so that more people can find our podcast. And now on to this episode of No Place Like Home. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt. And this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. Today, we're talking about both division and the need for unity in the fight for our planet. We have a great interview with Mae Booby, a fellow millennial and executive director of the powerhouse global climate group 350.org. Mae shares with us an inspiring story of an unlikely group of people banding together and winning a climate battle against all odds. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. So, Marianne. You know that my dad is a very conservative pastor, also a wonderful human being, but also a conservative pastor. Um, And we don't always see eye to eye or agree on everything to do with climate change. As featured famously in the years of living dangerously. Yes. So the other day he was down visiting us at our um, place in Alabama where me and my partner are living these days. And it was just the two of us. Forrest had to go back to Kentucky to visit family, and my mom was off somewhere. And we were sitting outside at sunset um, having a glass of scotch because that's his favorite evening ritual when he's on vacation. Good taste. Yes, (laughs) yes, he does have that. And, you know, my dad has this incredible love of nature. And just, you know, this is a magical place where we both feel deeply connected. You know, we saw like 20 dolphins that day. They're herons. The sunsets are literally um, like paintings every single night. All right, I'm booking a ticket. (laughs) (laughs) You should come visit us. I'm not kidding. Um, And my dad, you know, we're just kind of talking about how, you know, within the Christian faith, you know, there's a lot in the Bible about how, you know, God is kind of um, seen through that which he has made. So Martin Luther has this great quote that my dad loves to put up on his Facebook wall that's, God writes the gospel not in the Bible alone, but also on trees and in the flowers and clouds and stars. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah. And it's like moments like that where I really feel like we do get each other and like we do, we are coming from this kind of common view of this place that we love and want to protect. But then a couple of days later, um, he, you know, as you, you know, he has a quite a big social media following and he posted kind of very sort of offhandedly and callously this sort of derogatory thing about climate change, just kind of writing it off as like this thing that you shouldn't really care that much about or that, you know, was kind of being like sort of driven down our throats. Um, and it was really hurtful to me, you know, because we just had this kind of magical couple of days where I felt like we were really connected. And then, you know, and, you know, to his 200,000 plus followers, just like sort of callously disregards this thing that I've been working towards my entire adult life, nearly a decade of my life. Ah, oh, my heart is hurting a little for you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's not always the easiest mm-hmm. <laughs> place to be, but I don't think we're alone. And yeah. that you know, uh, we have family members where we we where we have these kind of s- seeming connections, but also pretty stark divisions. 
Well, and you know, for uh, listeners who may not have seen the Years of Living Dangerously episode, that was the Showtime series that we were both in that went on to win an Emmy. Um, and in the episode that you're featured in, you're trying to persuade your dad about the reality of climate change, and he's skeptical, and you introduce him to all these brilliant scientists and big thinkers and other fellow conservatives and fellow evangelicals, and he's not quite persuaded. And then there was an article um, that came out just in the you know recent weeks that uh, interviewed you and your dad, and your dad mentioned that he was more skeptical now about climate change than ever. I went into it maybe 45% a skeptic, climate change skeptic, 45% open, really open, maybe believing there is something to it. I got to about 98% skeptic. Mm. Wow. During that thing, maybe wow. 99. I mean, where it was just the craziest science. This is a political agenda. You no, know, whenever I have screened that episode with people, the first thing they want to know is how are Anna Jane and her dad doing? <laughs> that seems to be the number one thing people want to know after they see that episode. And I was actually surprised because when the episode ends, he seems to still you know, kind of be open-minded and here a couple of years later for him to be saying, I'm actually more skeptical was a little bit of a surprise to me. And I would love to hear w whether you think that's actually accurate, but also it really touched on how this has become such a political issue in this country and such a partisan issue that people now don't even see it anymore as connected with their love of nature or their love of a beautiful place. It's, it's gone and into this other category in people's heads. And I feel like we gotta, we gotta do something about that. Yeah, it's it's really quite stark. I, I think I certainly began to see it when we were filming Years of Living Dangerously, which is, you know, at this point, two or three years ago, um, that you know, it really wasn't about the science. It wasn't about like intellect or logic, but but it also wasn't about faith or spirituality. It wasn't about uh, what the Bible had to say about this issue or what you know, kind of Jesus talked about as insofar as loving our neighbors. Um, but it really was a political ideology. You know, it, you could put as much. Um, as much kind of spiritual reasoning in front of him or as much like scientific reasoning in front of him. And the lens that he was looking through was really this, you know, kind of very conservative political ideology um, that, you know, the, the the article that recently came out that kind of, you know, profiled us and, and some other amazing people we worked with at, on Years of Living Dangerously. Um, it's, you know, it really isn't about science or faith. It's about these kind of tribes of political ideology. And I, I don't exactly know how to change that other than, than, you know, obviously if I did, I would have, <laughs> I would have already done it in my own life. But I do think that there's something really important about continuing to connect with people who are not in our traps and, and, and really reaching across these boundaries. It's so, you know, I was recently living up in Brooklyn, New York, and it's kind of as progressive as a, you know, kind of a hub as you can imagine, where people have no idea that, uh, you know, rural Alabama exists or people like my dad exist other than like kind of radio caricatures. And, um, and I think it is just, it's so important to remember that, you know, there are these progressive bubbles, there are these conservative bubbles, there's, and, and until we start reaching across and connecting with people who, who don't just think the way that we do or see the way the world that we do, we're, we're always going to kind of be in these us first them mentalities. And we can't have that if we're going to beat this problem. And one of the things I think you and I both have experienced is as we are trying to break through those, those divisions, we can still connect with people about these issues in other ways. So you're using your dad again as an example. I remember when um, we were fighting the Asheville coal plant and uh, 
the Years of Living Dangerously had just come out, and you and your dad were going to go live on NPR in Charlotte, North Carolina for an hour and talk to the radio host, and we didn't know what your dad was going to say. And he still wasn't persuaded about climate change, but he agreed with us that that coal plant should be retired because of the other pollution that was coming from it, the mercury pollution, the water pollution. And so I think there are still points of connection, um, but we also, you know, I know you and I are both doing this podcast because we're determined to figure out how to break down some of those those barriers and how to how to how to shift this issue from being so political because it's essential if we're gonna if we're gonna win. Oh, absolutely! And I think I remember that day so well. I was utterly and completely terrified of what my dad might say on live radio in front of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands, of people. But when he said that, when he said, you know, it's it's really you know, regardless of climate change, we still have to fight you know coal pollution. We have to have clean air and clean water. You know, there was a sense of like we can come together on where we agree and start there. And and I think that's just what we have to keep doing and we have to keep refusing to let um, kind of walls of tribalism keep us apart and pitted against each other. I agree. And we have got a great guest today who's going to talk about one success story in doing that, May Bouvi from 350.org. I can't wait for everyone to hear that wonderful conversation. And that's coming up right after this. Where are they at a dinner? The idea is like we're giving somebody a fact that they could use at a dinner. So like if we were at dinner, it'd be like, oh, I knew this new thing. Like I just found out this thing today. Yeah, but if I if, if I'm talking to somebody, I'm gonna say, well, listen, man, I'm from Columbia, I'm Gene, mm-hmm. I'm from Columbiana. Is that who it's supposed to be? Yeah, yeah, just be exactly like that. Uh, hi, y'all. My name is Gene, and I live in Columbiana, Alabama. Your dinner party climate fact for today is wind and solar were the number one source of energy last year, both in the U.S. and worldwide. Good. That okay? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. We are excited to be talking to a great friend today, a climate rock star power lady, the executive director of 350.org, which is an organization that has been at the center of some of our most epic climate victories in the past decade, the defeat of the Keystone XL pipeline, the People's Climate March that had 400,000 people in the streets of New York City. And we are so excited to have you with us. Welcome, May Booby. I'm very happy to be with you guys on your podcast. Yay. I want to start with the one of the things you have accomplished that I am so jealous of. You are in vogue <laughs> <laughs> during the Paris Climate Talks. They released a, a portfolio with some beautiful photographs of some climate power ladies from around the world. And as, uh, you know, someone who is a person who, you know, flips through the pages of a magazine like that, and I imagine, what is it like to have a photo shoot with Vogue? Just tell us, what was it like? It was a really fun day. And part of that fun was walking in and seeing other activists and movement leaders getting their hair done (laughs) by professionals and getting to play dress up basically with Vogue. There was this rack of all these incredible 
garments and they had me try on all these different things. And the funniest part was they had me try on this blazer and they said, just wear it without anything under it. <laughs> I said, I don't think I can do that. So I opted for a black turtleneck instead, which you was know, more my style. You see those ladies wearing them on the red carpet and you do think, how in the world? <laughs> right. I, I got to try that out and it, it wasn't for me. But it was. it felt like such a wonderful opportunity and... I was really glad about the range of different people working at the local level to the national to the international level. And the photos turned out beautifully. And the photographers were wonderful to work with. And it was an experience unlike anything else I've, I've had. <laughs> people don't think of, of climate change as the realm of glamour and, and fashion. So when you get that little chance, uh, just, just soak it up. So uh, I know Anna Jane is excited to talk with you too. So I'm going to let her take the next question. Um, I was just curious. I think we graduated around the same time. I graduated from in 07. And I know that you you guys kind of started 350 out of your dorm rooms. And I was just curious, like, especially being so young, what was it about this particular issue that was like, you know, not only did have you devoted your life to you, but from such a very young age, and it was very kind of crystallized from a young age. Like, how did you get there? What was that journey like? I think one of the things that was most important is in learning about climate change, realizing that if we could address the climate crisis, we could address so many other problems at the same time in rebuilding the economy. It could have an impact on people's health. It could have an impact on people living in poverty. It could change the way people within their communities relate to each other. And so I started to see of all the things that I was interested in, of all the things I was learning about in school and becoming concerned about, if I could work on this, it could touch on all these other things that I felt really passionate about. And that was really important to me in terms of becoming part of a movement like that. And the other thing that was happening at the same time, as you'll remember from that era, is the Iraq War. And there was, at least on my campus, very little activism about the war. And I couldn't believe it because I had always associated going away to school with activism. I think because of books I'd read and movies I'd seen. And I had this image in my head of people in their dorm rooms trying to foment the revolution. And obviously we needed a revolution to stop the war. And I would have conversations with my colleagues and my classmates who just didn't see how we could do anything about stopping the war. And I found it really demoralizing. And it was my friends who we ended up starting 350 together with. We actually met through anti-war organizing, and we were a small little group, but that was how we met. And that, that passion for a small group of people who are taking action can actually see big results. And then what shifted, I think, is that Another amazing thing about working on climate change is that if you take action at the local level, it does impact everything that happens globally. So by trying to make our campus one of the most sustainable campuses in the country, which was really our goal, it did actually have an impact on what was happening in other parts of the world. And so I think that's what helped grow the campus climate change movement so quickly at that time is people were able to get over that sense of hopelessness and concern about impact, which I think our generation has, and it's a positive thing, but it also has its downsides in terms of people not 
wanting to pick a cause or be an activist unless they can see results. That's a great point. I think that sense of hopelessness is one of the things that in the climate fight for our climate, we have to overcome. And so for folks who are listening who may not know as much about 350, um, I'd love for you to both talk a little bit about what 350 is and what you do, but also, um, you know, you were at the center of pulling off what I think is one of the most unlikely victories in the climate movement, which was the defeat of the Keystone Pipeline. I think very few people really saw that victory, you know, when you all launched that campaign in the very early days. And so tell us both about what 350 does, but also what you think the lessons are from that victory, um, both for just how social change happens and also things that the larger climate fight, you know, in this struggle for our planet, things we should be learning from, from that experience. So 350 stands for the safe level of carbon in the atmosphere. That's why that's our name. And the other reason why is we work all over the world. So we didn't want to pick a name that was a word in one language, but we wanted to pick a more universal concept. So hence choosing a number as a name. And we exist with the goal of trying to catalyze more movement all over the world because our belief is that a problem as big as climate change can't be solved without a massive social movement. And so at the very beginning, when we started in 2008, we would organize these days of action where there were multiple events all over the globe where different communities could see that they weren't alone in their particular fight. So people who are trying to save a melting glacier in Montana in the U.S. could see their fight as connected to people who were trying to stop coal extraction in South Africa and on and on and on. And at a certain point, we started to ask ourselves tough questions about actually how do we work within that network to push for specific changes that we want to see. And it was in that vein that the fight over the Keystone Pipeline started to take shape for us. And it, it really started in Canada among First Nations who were trying to stop tar sands expansion in Alberta and other organizations like Sierra Club, like National Wildlife Federation, trying to shut off different pipeline routes that were coming out of the tar sands. And as we were thinking about this question of how does the movement demonstrate its power and demonstrate that we can win and build momentum, the idea of fighting a particular project that the president of the United States himself could make a decision on started to animate us as a really important question because there was not a lot happening at the congressional level and we had gotten many signs from the president about how seriously he took climate change, how he considered climate action part of his legacy. So the fact that there was an existing fight, a diversity of actors involved in it and a clear decision by the most powerful person in the country made it seem like okay, this is a fight where we can really work within the whole movement and try to advance it. And we never thought that we would win. <laughs> well, that is so interesting because uh, it did at the beginning, I think if there was a tilting at a windmill kind of a feeling to it, which is, you know, here's kind of an ob obscure uh, pipeline in a, in a place that's far away from where lots of Americans live and 
And uh, why are we going to win this one? And so it's interesting to know that it felt <laughs> that way to you at the beginning as well. Absolutely. And I, I remember I had was having breakfast with people and we were talking about the upcoming climate conference in Paris and kind of comparing notes about all the things that were going to happen. And it was actually a really positive meeting. I remember coming, I was working from home that day and feeling energized about the work ahead for Paris. And I sat down at my computer and I got a rapid succession of emails indicating that the decision was likely to happen that day. Uh, This morning, Secretary Kerry informed me that after extensive public outreach and consultation with other cabinet agencies, the State Department has decided that the Keystone XL pipeline would not serve the national interests of the United States. I agree with that decision. And I was not expecting that at all. (laughs) I was expecting, I think it was a, I was expecting sort of a quiet day working from home. I had to take a trip later that day. And so, and I watched the press conference and just cried (laughs) in my house by myself. And it just so happened that day that a lot of the people on our Keystone team were in transit for various reasons. So a lot of us had that experience. I remember Sarah Shore, who was a key organizer in the whole campaign. I think she was at an airport watching the press conference. And we, so that was funny to me in a sense because it reminded me that there were so many people who felt central to that decision happening. And so we were all having this experience together at the same time, um, which I loved. And then even though we weren't actually together. And then later that day, I was I was able to attend the you know informal, fun DC party with a bunch of the people who'd worked on this from the beginning and got to celebrate a little bit with them and just was elated for days and days and days afterwards. Uh, that just gave me chills. <laughs> um, I was, we actually got arrested together fighting Keystone XL. <laughs> I think that was one of the first times that I'd hung out with you. Um, <laughs> and one of the things that really stood out to me about that movement in particular that I think in some ways set it apart from, from other climate campaigns certainly, but also just social movements in general, was how diverse it was. You know, you had everyone from First Nations in Canada to crazy climate hippies to Nevada ranchers to Texans. And I was just curious, like, how how did you see that level of diversity playing a role in, in the success of that of that movement or of that campaign? I think it was essential to all the successes that happened. And people were able to play particular role given who they were and what they had worked on. And there wasn't an attempt to put us all in one central coalition effort where we said the same things. And I think that was pretty important. And so there were probably a lot of issues that we wouldn't necessarily agree with, with some of the people involved in the campaign. But on this one, stopping this pipeline, whether it was because of water or land rights or treaty rights or the climate or corporate control of the government, you name it, people could, I think, unify around the demand. So yeah, not asking people to sacrifice themselves and their identity and what mattered to them in the name of a campaign, I think created a sense of communal ownership. And also things like good communication. There was ongoing coordination of all these different players. We were talking to each other. We were trying to resolve conflicts, which inevitably arose about 
what we would do when and what exactly the focus would be. So, of course, we went through those sorts of challenges too, but I think there was uh, strong communication, strong relationships that helped enable that to happen. So interesting as the climate movement goes forward is when I, in my work at the Sierra Club and the Beyond Coal campaign, we see people coming together around a very clear goal, which is retire this coal plant and try to bring renewable energy online to replace it. And some people are coming to that because they care about climate change. Some people are worried about water pollution in their community. Some people are worried about their child having asthma. And it's allowing people to come in from these multiple entry points. And like you said, hold on to your own identity, to what brought you to it, and then win. And so it's not just bringing people together, but it's it's then winning those campaigns where suddenly you realize David can beat Goliath. And if we could do it here, we can do it again. And I think that the climate movement is missing that optimism. And I think we have all been trying to bring that to the climate movement and not just optimism, but the, the really um, defying expectations. I think that there's a lot of sort of defeat around climate change. It's just so big. We can't fix it. You know, we have to wait for China. We have to, you know, invent some new technology. And that's something very inspiring about what you've done as well. And so if you could just talk a little bit more about, um, as you look ahead, sort of how do we, how do we keep channeling that optimism and how do, how do we inspire more people uh, to get in, involved in, because David can be Goliath? What I'm excited about right now, and we've been talking about this a lot in our team of late, is obviously the idea of the transition from fossil fuels to clean energy has been the animating force in the climate movement, not just here but around the world. But it really seems like the moment for that to accelerate and be made really visible is here with us. And we're starting to imagine ways that the movement that says no to things and the movement that says yes to things, that we can get through this weird impasse and actually work as one. And I think that the fact that there's just so much evidence in many people's lives about clean energy has, is helping a huge amount. And on the other side, there's so much evidence that, as you said, David can beat Goliath and coal plants are being shut down and fracking bans are being put in place. So I think that this idea of reviving the economy that is so lagging in so many countries, so many people are feeling very discouraged about their prospects, and a lot of governments, not just ours, see the energy transition as the way to solve that problem. So that's really, really encouraging, and it's not a new... I think part of it is it's not a new idea, but it's the the various puzzle pieces that were needed to make that transition, as I said, accelerate, seem to be really coming together. So I'm starting to get really excited about that possibility. And again, the places where there seems to be the, the most disagreement, the most discord in the movement is when people are feeling like one agenda has to displace the other. And of course, there are moments when decisions have to be made, and that's a really reasonable thing to expect. But I think we can actually push past some of that. Well, I love that you're 
rejecting this binary notion that we either are for things or we are against them because people are very animated by both of those at the same time. Like I am against my daughter growing up on an uninhabitable planet and mountains being blown up. And that is very motivating to me to be for a country powered with clean energy and to force people to have to choose or to say one of these is the old way of thinking and one is the new way of thinking. I, it's just, it's, I feel like we're, we're diminishing our power when we, we pretend that those are a binary and we have to choose one or the other. I was just going to say, I've been reading a lot about within faith traditions, how unhelpful binaries are. And so I hadn't thought about this connection until you said that, Marianne, but I think actually one of the other things that's important to me is not disassociating faith and spirituality and you know belief in things you can't see from activist work, from the climate cause. And I think actually busting through the binary around stopping fossil fuels and advancing the clean energy economy is actually an example of something that we, part of the way to get through that is to see the world in a different lens. Yeah, I'd love to hear you. Like, obviously I've worked with quite a few um, faith communities and my, my father's an evangelical pastor, as we all know, thanks to years of living dangerously. <laughs> um, but I'm just curious, like both how spirituality kind of, um, sort of infuses and empowers you as an individual or if it does. And then also how you see faith and spirituality, you know, really bringing something positive to, to this work, um, and to this movement. I've been thinking about this a lot more lately, I would say in the past year than I have in the last 10 years. And also I think because my dad is also a minister. And so I was immersed in all of this stuff as a kid and then kind of moved away from it because the climate movement became my church. <laughs> and that the sense of belonging, the sense of shared ritual, shared identity, I was really, that need was being met through the movement and I feel very grateful for that. And at a certain point, I needed something more because, uh, because of feeling discouraged. And um, so I've started to go to church more. I've started to talk more about that with people. And that's been really rewarding. I think what I've been interested in lately is this idea that climate change activism is like having faith because there's very little evidence to believe in God. <laughs> you, can, you can make some connections between good things in your life and a higher power, but you can't, you can never prove it. Or I don't believe you can prove it. I don't think it's worth trying. That's not the point. And I think it's similar with being a climate activist where if you read the IPCC report, if you look at the science, we know we are too late and we're not going to use that to stop fighting. And we're actually engaged right now in an effort to change something that we will never see. Um, in generations to come. If we're successful right now, it will be many, many generations on down the line who are experiencing that. And so I see that as very similar to f having faith. And that's been something that's given me some comfort and also the best way I've found for myself of connecting something that's really important to me and has always been in my personal life to my greatest passion, which is movement work. When I think about sort of how this com 
podcast came to life is through conversations me and Marion have been having for years. But one of them is like envisioning my sisters and like my best friend who's like a badass doctor and new mom and like a very like progressive woman. But um, like how do we, but you know, obviously engaged in this issue and we'll sign any petition I send her. But how do we like, how do we tell this story and provide hope and give people a place in this conversation and in this movement who aren't there yet? And like, and so I would just, yeah, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on thinking through those sort of cousins or sisters who are supportive and want to see this happen, but don't really know where to start. I think it's a really good question and I wish the answer were more straightforward, but I think just imagining the the people in my life who fit that description, a lot of it for them has been finding a cause in their community that they can personally connect with that is part of the whole and being able to, my contribution is being able to help say, oh, what you're working on is really connected to this, this other aspect. So for me, it's been watching my dad help start and be part of the local climate group in my hometown. And he's, very involved in lots of activist initiatives, but not climate change up until recently. And just watching how he is completely animated by it. And they've been doing something that works in a lot of places, which is showing films about the issue and helping people come together and discuss and then have a clear thing they can take action with. And things like that continue to seem to be the ways that people find their on-ramp into the movement. And the, on the other side of the equation, I think continuing to tell stories that reach a wide audience and one of the things that the climate movement I think has gotten pretty good at is telling stories in the press and telling not just the story of the issue but the story of the movement. And I think that has helped a lot. And seeing pictures of the People's Climate March on the front page of the New York Times is important for people who think, well... Sure, this issue is serious, but is anything really going to happen? I think it's it's not just the community organizing aspect. It's providing a sense of mass momentum and a sense of winning power that people want to be swept up in. So I think that's those two things together are, are pretty essential. May, we love you and admire you, and we are so grateful to you for joining us. Thank you so much. I had such a nice time talking with you guys. Thank you for doing this. All right, until we meet again, friends, Marianne and I want to thank you all so much for listening. Big thanks again to our amazing interview guest, May Booby. This episode was produced by the dazzling Zach Mack, who rides his bike a lot, but also takes long showers. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review. This really helps us out a lot and helps other people find this conversation. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll be posting all episodes and updates and information about future shows on our Twitter page, at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or want to be a part of it by reading a Dinner Party Climate Pack for a future episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. And remember, there's no place like home. <laughs>